As rural communities across the country have faced economic hardship, young people have moved away into cities, taking their innovative ideas and entrepreneurial spirit with them. But efforts like the new Seed Innovation Hub in Farmville, Virginia, are trying to flip the script. I want Farmville to be known more than a game that used to be on Facebook. Farmville is the place where if you want to get into the game of innovation, this is where you come. If you want to try something brand new that's so different that no one else is willing to try, well, welcome to the seed because we'll plant it and we'll help you grow it and we'll help you cultivate it. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, fostering innovation in rural America and later five daily work experiences and how they affect creative performance. But first, Chris Cook is a professor of political science at Longwood University, and Sherry McGuire is the associate vice president of community and economy at Longwood University. Together, they've helped create the Seed Innovation Hub in Farmville, Virginia, to spark rural entrepreneurship. Chris, you and Sherry have helped create the Seed Innovation Hub in Farmville, Virginia. This is to attract rural startups. What first gave you the idea, I want to do something that seeds startups? Oh, man. So many different things. I'll give you just one from outside Virginia. I was a part of founding uh, several innovation hubs up in the Northeast. And then I had this opportunity, this really cool job opened up in Farmville, Virginia. Remember, I'm a Bronx kid. I came from the city streets to a place where there are horse carriages in the traffic jam. There are fields. Everywhere you go, an hour north, hour south, east, west, there's fields of corn. There's horse farms. I came from a place where there were cop cars and fire trucks <laughs> and traffic jams. And the only traffic jam we have are any horse-drawn carriages that are going a little bit too slow or bicyclists. Sherry, what about you? In your family, do you have family members who are small business people? Well, certainly my family is um, they're from a farming background. Growing up in Southern Virginia, I've seen a lot of change. I saw manufacturing go away. And I saw my parents, who were not only farmers, but worked in textile mill. They lost their jobs. And so many just didn't know what to do. And they, they, they needed the opportunity to create their own jobs. I think in my heart, I want every grade schooler in Southern Virginia to, to be able to see the success and see the ability to think creatively and do that and, and be supported in that and change the culture because that loss of jobs took us back a long way. So why do you need innovation hubs? Most businesses I can think of, I feel like started, somebody had an idea, started small and got big. Oh, but that's around urban areas where there's already money and there's already kind of venture capital firms. How many venture capital firms are based out in farmland? Uh, there'd be zero. And if there are any, they will be at Farmville, Virginia. We need something like this in rural areas because something that, you know, a friend of ours talked about called farm sense. And farm sense is this idea that when something breaks, you have to come up with a kind of MacGyver-esque way of handling that situation. Back in the city, I could go to a corner hardware store. But in the farm, there is no corner hardware store. You have to come up with your own innovative way of solving that broken tool, solving that problem. And that if we can help patent some of those ideas and bring them to life, that's where innovation is constantly unexperienced in a daily life. And we could do that through an innovation hub right where the people are located. So do people come to innovation hubs and try to dream up ideas for new businesses? Or are innovation hubs where people who are electrified already by their own ideas come to grow them? I yes, think it's but both. more. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's both, and I, I think it's um it's our our chance to give the culture more of a um, bent to creativity and creative thinking and innovation, and that type of opportunity is not there yet. This hub will bring that. It's more than that too, right? It's the idea that innovation is happening every day on those farms, and it's to bring that out. And to show that innovation just doesn't happen in a city area. 
innovation happens everywhere and especially in the rural communities. So for us, it's to show that the people that are working those farms, working in those areas are innovative and giving them a platform to connect to maybe some venture capitalists that will actually help make their dreams or their everyday dreams a broader reality for other people around the country. I think we're going to be a model for rural innovation for this country and for across the world because there's not very many. There's zero. How did you get funding for it? Oh, uh-huh. Sherry. <laughs> Sherry, take this away, Sherry. Go for it. <laughs> well, it, it was a creative alignment of uh, different plans and different opportunities. We built our plan, our business plan, and we went in front of the Tobacco Commission first. And they granted us 500000 towards construction. And from there, we approached Go Virginia at the state level for funding for equipment. Um, they also said yes. It was hard to tell us no with the, with the plans <laughs> that, that we had in front of us and the vision that we put out there. Um, and with those two sources as match, we were able to go through the U.S. Economic Development Administration for the remaining construction funding. So we just last week got word of a $1.9 million grant from the U.S. EDA to finish Tell us a story of what's happening in rural areas like yours. Well, a lot of rural areas, economic decline is the story. It's over and over again, no matter what state you go to. And that story can be rewritten through innovation hubs like this. And it's economic decline and loss of the brain trust. And population loss, yes. So what is large enough? What do you want to see there? Oh, 10,000 square foot space that has everything that a community can possibly want. So everything from sewing machines to laser cutters to welding machines to YouTube type studios, green rooms, to podcast studios, Macs and PCs so that someone wants to develop software, they can. If they want to develop a product, they can. If they want to become a social entrepreneur, they can. The innovation hub the two of you are envisioning is more like the library of the future. Yes. Yes. And it's a library that connects with the traditional library, that connects with the community groups. It's a new way of incorporating more of what people are already doing on a daily basis into something bigger than what they think they are doing. We're a place where people can make their dreams a reality. For example, we have uh, one young business owner who's created a, a business literally just to help women become much more effective in their presentation when they go for job interviews, when they want to create businesses. It gives them tools, access to funding, clothes, right? So this is people helping other people doing what they want to do. One young man wanted to go into the audio business and he was next to an airport. And so somebody that was a pilot wanted to equip their plane with an audio system. He created a new business out of the innovation hub just with the audio system, his passion about audio system. And now he has a whole business where he hired his father. He hired his uncle. And this was a dropout who thought he had nothing to give and he's making a life for himself. We all can do that. And innovation hubs like this will be examples of how it can happen across the country, not just in cities. You're teaming up with another nearby university, Hampton-Sydney University. What are they bringing to the table? They are bringing to the table their own innovation center and personnel. And I'm sorry, but when you bring different organizations together who have been maybe separate, just things that you couldn't do on your own before. We're showing that two universities who are like, what, five miles apart, if that, are coming together to then create a synergy between two universities who maybe were in competition together are now collaborating together. Have you met anybody in the community who is not part of Longwood University, but who already wants to have a go at it? Sure, sure. Luther Cyphers is the CEO of Yakka Attack in Farmville. It is a manufacturer of uh, kayak accessories. And from his humble beginnings making um, 3D printed accessories and then creating this wonderful manufacturing company around that, he wants to give back. So he is going to mentor students that are creating products of their own. And perhaps if he has the capacity, if they are ready to go to market to manufacture a test run 
for them. And word has gotten out already. So we have a former strategic development officer from Google and also has experience with Amazon and was the innovation director at Cornell University. He was so excited about this. This is no joke. He bought a house in Farmville. He's now working with <laughs> us in at the Innovation Hub, making it go. So it's not just local people, but the word is getting out how innovative and unique we are. Is there any aspect of how to equip the Innovation Center that surprised you but also excites you now that you're going to do it? Yes. Um, one or more sewing machines. There's a lot of people in the community who wanted sewing machines. So I'm hoping even sewing clubs start <laughs> start at the Innovation Hub, right? That that that's one, one avenue. Another is interest in welding. Um, that's, that's another big thing that I, I didn't expect. The community members have full access to this. And that's what's really beautiful. It's allowing anybody to have a voice and allowing their creative energy to become real. I know there was an experience that you've had yourself with a failure in an innovative idea that was really close to your heart. Sometimes those failures inform us better than our successes. What was that? Yes, it was my company called Innoval. And Innoval was was set up to set up uh, a, a kind of a K through 12 business for showing a social emotional learning using different technologies and educational materials. And I learned a lot from the failure of that. And I took some of that and brought it to Virginia. And I have one business that I brought down that's still going and it's here now in Virginia. But that lesson also told me a lot of lessons about people. And that's what this innovation hub is centered on is the people and the differences that they have. And so for me, this idea of an innovation hub, watching people fail, but helping them learn from the lessons of failure, which are perfectly fine. But I think we live in a society that wants just all the shiny, I'm going to win things. But man, you build grit, you build resilience, you learn things about yourself and about other people that help you become a better teacher, a better guide, maybe a better coach, a better investor. So I may have failed coming out of the gate, but it's all about the long run. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And entrepreneurial thinking is something that shouldn't just be a capitalist way of thinking. An entrepreneurial way of thinking helps you solve problems and issues that's good for all of society. Yes, it could be useful for a business, but entrepreneurial thinking is not only for business. It's for the Barbara Johns of this world who can make a difference, who can stand up and say, I can change this. I can change X to make Y and Z better. And she made a difference. And that's a social entrepreneur. And that's what this innovation hub is also about. It's about thinking differently and cultivating that difference of thinking. That's a strength of America. That's a strength in our rural areas. There are so many people who think differently and outside the box. Well, let's put some of those ideas in a box so that they can make some profit off of it as well and make this world a better place. We can do both. And I don't understand why we have to choose one or the other. And these innovation hubs, especially Seed, we're all in on both. Chris and Sherry, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank, thank you, you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Chris Cook is the Wilma Register Sharp and Mark Boyd Sharp, Dean of the Cormier Honors College for Citizen Scholars and Professor of Political Science at Longwood University. Sherry McGuire is the Associate Vice President of Community and Economy at Longwood University. We all have our share of good and bad days at work. Some days we're in the zone, feeling super productive, other days, it can be hard to get those creative juices flowing. Alex McKay has helped identify five days we all experience at work and how they affect creative performance. Alex McKay is a management and entrepreneurship professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Yeah, the five types of experience we identified. Uh, the first type is a, a toxic day. These days were kind of shown to have low support from your work group and your supervisor and your organization. You don't have much freedom or resources, and your work really is kind of boring and not that challenging. And on top of that, 
you have time pressure and you have a lot of political problems. And, and what I mean by that is kind of disagreements and contention with each other in terms of maybe fighting or arguing and just kind of this low risk sort of conservative attitude with how you go about doing your work. Now, thankfully, that was the, the least occurring day in the, the study that we did. And the second type of day is a disengaged day where all of the, the different aspects that kind of make up a work environment are low. So the good things in your work environment aren't really there, but neither are those negative things that I mentioned, like time pressure or disagreement and, and kind of those low risk attitudes. The third day was a typical day. This is just kind of run of the mill, average levels of those different uh, aspects of a work day. And that was the most common day that people experienced, which is not too surprising of something to, to report. The next day was a, a pretty important day, and that's called the ideal day. You have freedom in your work. You have challenging tasks to complete. You have resources. Everybody's being supportive and encouraging in the work that you're doing. Now, those negative things like disagreements and butting heads and, and those low-risk attitudes are very low and not necessarily a problem. Now, the last day, the fifth day that we identified was kind of unique as it both kind of had elements of that ideal day, those positive things, but it also had some of the elements of the toxic day as well in terms of disagreements and contention regarding one's work and the tasks that you're doing as a team. Now, in this case, as opposed to the toxic day, this is more likely kind of just disagreements about the tasks that you're doing rather than maybe kind of arguments and disagreements with each other and that fighting that can be much more negative as opposed to kind of more constructive disagreement in one's work. So the good days typically to have are what? So probably the best days overall would be those ideal days. We found that those were more related to creativity and we saw higher levels of creativity in our sample on those days relative to all of the other days. However, it's not necessarily practical or always realistic to expect that those days are going to occur all of the time. Now, without any doubt, toxic days are very problematic and they're not constructive or likely helpful in any other regard. However, sometimes we do need other breaks in our life and throughout our work where maybe we do need a day where we just kind of are a little more disconnected and disengaged from the workplace. There's also really no problems of sometimes just having a typical day that's not very exciting or compelling that just allows you to kind of get the tasks you need to get done. Maybe you have a lot of emails to write and you're not necessarily doing all those more enjoyable tasks that you have to do, but you just got to you just have to get it done. And those crisis days, they're really relevant in terms of do we need to, to shift the direction of a project and the work that we're doing in a way that can move it in, a, in the direction it needs to go, for example? And sometimes those butting of heads of how you're doing your work and your tasks can be really important in general, but also then as a precursor to those ideal days where creativity can really happen ideally. So tell me how you and your partners came to came to sample these surveys and these workers. How long ago did you do it? What surveys and workers were you using? And what were you initially after? Yeah, so we used this uh, big data set that's available of 220 people, and they completed as a whole across these people 11,500 daily surveys, many weeks that people completed while they worked on different projects in their work. And this, this data was collected in the late 90s. And we wanted to look at whether or not these perceptions of your workday and your work group could be better understood as this as combinations of types of days that people experience and the, the experiences that they do have. And who were the people? Were these college workers? No, they were not college workers. They were uh, employees working at three different types of industries, technology, consumer products, and chemicals. And they were uh, well-established in their, their workplaces, having generally about eight to nine years of work experience as a whole. Right. Did you come away thinking there are certain kinds of environments that companies should work toward? Yeah, I think in many regards, uh, working to create an ideal environment that, that you can have these ideal days is very beneficial. Even if on a particular day, for example, an employee or a worker is kind of more checked out and having a disengaged day, there is an aspect of 
you still as a supervisor or manager want to create an environment where they feel supported and encouraged and have that freedom to even kind of have those days as well. And, and, and even in that process, you're creating an ideal day or the possibility of one that they can uh, have. Is it more about communication or is it more about having one of these like great food bars or extra perks around the office, that kind of thing? Is it more about the attitude of a supervisor to a worker or is it just letting the worker alone to do their thing? I think it's more about communication. Absolutely. I mean, the the food bars are great, but at the end of the day, people want support and encouragement and recognition for the work that they're doing more than anything else. I mean, who doesn't love a free lunch? But at the same time, <laughs> that that's that's almost the the minimum and the 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 necessary. I don't want to say the minimum because it's almost unnecessary in many regards. But most importantly, and, and the necessary is just making sure that you're supporting your employees and providing them the, the recognition and assistance that they need to complete their jobs and, and excel at them. You know, it's a lot of work for a corporate president or for a high-level manager or supervisor to personally see and comment on and be aware of and give an attaboy or an girl to a worker but I think workers crave it. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I strongly agree that they do really want to, to get that. And it's such, it's such a simple thing when you walk up to an employee and just say, you know, you did a great job and you did great work on, you know, this particular task or on this project that we all did. I, I'm really happy that you were a team member on it. Even just the recognition of, of your help and your assistance and that you're, you're seen being involved in that process can be really important. Can you look in your own work experiences and find a time when you felt like the bosses, the boss, the supervisor, whomever, really fostered an environment that made you feel terrific? Oh, absolutely. I've Before we went going into academia and, and doing research, I worked airline customer service. I worked other customer service jobs. I did construction, all sorts of wide varieties of jobs. <laughs> and I still, even to this day, remember some of the bosses who had a really positive impact and, and made me feel encouraged and supported and welcomed in the environment. And some of the ones who were either checked out themselves and unavailable or just not supportive in the first place. For instance, in the construction job, feel supported? Actually, surprisingly, at the company that I did, yes. So I was a terrible construction worker. I will just openly say that. <laughs> I was not good at that job. Um, but despite yeah. how terrible I was, just really kind of pushed me and gave me confidence to keep working forward and doing that and doing well. In the end, it was he realized my talents were going to be elsewhere. But at that that moment was actually when I moved to go start college. And so I ended up leaving the company right when he was going to move me kind of into the office to be more involved in kind of shipping and ordering. And it was just a really impactful person I worked with and really kind of truly pushed me in ways that I didn't know and sometimes even didn't always appreciate or not appreciate is the wrong word, but didn't always know, I guess. Yeah. Can you relate the way he was to you and in those circumstances to sort of the bigger picture about how companies can foster that feeling of empowerment and therefore either creativity or satisfaction among employees? Yeah, I mean, I think a big uh, aspect of that that was important in that experience and with, with him was just giving people a voice and listening to them, even though I even hadn't been there that long. He still took time to come ask me how things were going, any ideas that I had, my experiences and what he could do to help me. And, and giving that voice and being there to communicate is very valuable to, to getting new ideas as a company, to just the employee feeling like they have a voice to share those ideas as well. You know, when you did this study with your colleagues, it was pre-pandemic. Now that our jobs have changed in so many ways, for a lot of people, the patterns are different. A lot of people are working from home. It's just a different experience how would you transfer some of the, the, the guidance that you might have given us pre-pandemic to 
how managers should see things with their employees now. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've thought about this a, a lot, and I would love to follow this up with a study kind of with the, the current way the work environment is, people working from home, people going into the office. And I think there are definitely kind of good and bad elements to that. For example, if you were in a, an environment that was toxic and you had an unsupportive supervisor and colleagues, working from home might allow you to have more ideal days just because you're more removed from that, that, that aspect. And, you know, disengaged days can be good, but they can also be bad. And in maybe an environment that's toxic, they would be bad. And you might get to avoid those types of days. However, if you really are an environment and with a, a supervisor and coworkers who create an ideal aspect and you going home, it might kind of push you into having more disengaged or typical days. Um, so it's, it's figuring out what works for you. And if you are a supervisor, how can you ensure people working from home feel that support and have tasks and freedom to do their work in ways that fulfills them and makes them happy? Do you feel that in your current environment, has your situation changed as far as office work and homework? Absolutely. I, I find myself working from home uh, more now. And it, it, it was a shift in terms of learning how to create a social dynamic and a social environment that is helpful when you're completely removed from it. So I, I regularly check in and get together even via Zoom or meeting up with colleagues to kind of just catch up and see what they're doing, what I'm doing. And that can help in, inspire and give uh, you new ideas for what you can do in your own work. You know, hearing you say that, I realize it could be that we need to maybe try to get better at how we communicate. Like you said, communication is everything. So even if it's Zoom and remote, how can we do that in ways that foster more joy and creativity? Absolutely. I know uh, kind of even going beyond it where there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, tracking employees with all these different software apps. And it's usually in a lot of research is showing that that's not helpful and actually can be uh, decrease worker satisfaction and happiness. But Rather than just, you know, feeling the need to just track them in that manner, just check in with them. Just send them an email saying, how are things going? What can I do to help you? I mean, just doing that lets them know that you want them to be successful and that you're not just necessarily being micromanaging. And if you are doing it in that way, stop. <laughs> um, but if you figure out ways that you can still work with them rather than track them, to help them be more successful in their work and what resources they might need at home to do their job and come up with those creative ideas. Huh, this is so inspiring. Alex McKay, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. Alex McKay is a management and entrepreneurship professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. My next guest studies transformational leaders, people who inspire others and drive positive change. Michael LaRocca is a psychology professor at Virginia Military Institute. He actually experienced a transformational leader himself, when he was serving in Iraq as an executive officer in the Army. Mike, during your deployment in Iraq, there was a leader who changed your life and that of many guys in your unit. What was the incident that you all experienced before his arrival? Right. We were in our deployment uh, in Iraq. We were an infantry uh, troop, a uh, troop being about, uh, about 100 or so people. And we were doing our routine patrols and we were getting ready actually to have our, uh, our seasoned uh, commander, an army captain. We were getting ready for him to turn over the command to an incoming uh, commander. When uh, shortly before the change of command, uh, both of these uh, captains were uh, tragically killed by a, a car bomb uh, while they were uh, patrolling together. So this was a vehicle-borne IED, an improvised explosive device. We were all quite close to him. He was an, an excellent leader, um, really set the example of uh, 
discipline and effectiveness and being tactically effective. And so he was very much uh, looked up to. I, I think it's fair to say that we were all devastated. We were all shocked, including this 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 new commander, because it's not only difficult to take a new leadership position anyway, but this had the exceedingly extra difficulty of taking over when nobody expected this new person to take over, inheriting as a leader, him inheriting a situation that he, uh, I'm sure he never thought he would be in, not a situation quite like that anyway. And so I think it was an incredible human challenge for him and all of us, but also an unbelievable leadership challenge for him. Because again, it's hard to assume leadership in a new capacity anyway, no matter what you're doing, even when times are good, I would argue, uh, let alone when there's this double tragedy and nobody was expecting things to play out quite like this. When did he come in? How long after the tragic explosion? Yeah, you know, I, 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 um, I'm foggy on how many days it was. It wasn't very many days. Uh, the, the, our, our higher unit had to basically um, get through the tragedy, but then also basically scramble uh, to find somebody who was qualified to take the troops. So I, I, I believe it was a few days. It wasn't very long at all. Um, and I think that added to the intensity of it because this was so shocking and this was so sudden. And while all of us were trying to process this in our own way, we're also supposed to keep going and you know receive this new commander uh, who I think it's fair to say everybody respected as well. But back to what I said earlier, nobody was expecting it this way. They thought the other uh, captain, one of the one of the two fallen captains, was going to take over, and nobody was ready for this. Your argument is that he made a lasting impression on you and actually was transformational in the lives of the people he then commanded. When did you first notice this is an exceptional guy? Mm -hmm. I would say I noticed it right away. I, I will never forget the day, which was, you know, again, not long after the tragedy. I, I will never forget the day that he came to our troop, came to our area um, on the FOB in Iraq, and he got us all together. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, look, I know you all are devastated. I'm devastated as well. And that he could never replace uh, our previous commander or the one who was going to take command, but that he was in this together with us and he was going to work with us to turn things around, not to bring back those who we had lost, but to, but to honor their legacy essentially, but at the same time, turn things around and um, help us get through this together because it was a tragedy and not only get through it, but to continue moving forward and, and to excel. And I think it's fair to say that what made him transformational is that he was willing to articulate a vision. That's one of the things that transformational leaders do is they have a vision where they're not just managing and uh, doing the status quo as a leader and kind of controlling things, but they also have a vision about where we need to go. And that vision is inspiring and takes you into, into account people's uh, goals and motivations and it tends to be emotionally up uplifting. And so one of the things he did was he had a vision of turning us around by getting us to do more than we thought we ever would be doing uh, in combat. And I think ultimately that's why he was successful, not just in empathizing with us, but turning things around, You know, in inheriting a tough situation, which is what these transformational leaders often do, inheriting a tough situation and finding a way to harness people's motivation and even excitement to move forward and to get something extraordinary done. How did he speak with you as an executive officer about what you would now need to do with the trip? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, firm in his communications at times, but he was very much a principled leader who knew what was best for me to be doing as his assistant, and he knew what was best for the troop. And so... You know, I had been formally trained, I had been tactically trained to manage logistics as this executive officer to, you know, do things like go to the meetings, do the unglamorous tasks. But what he got me to do in kind of a roundabout way was to do more than that, to be more of a humanitarian leader, to be somebody who's going to go around and check in with people, to do the kinds of things that I wasn't necessarily trained to do. I mean, at the, at the time, I was a young infantry officer. I had no idea I was ever going to become a psychologist. But he was having me be psychologically informed in a sense where I needed to 
provide psychological support. I mean, not in a formal sense, obviously not therapy, but just provide emotional support. Go around and talk to different key leaders in our troop and different soldiers. And in doing that, there were often tears. There was a lot of emotion. There was a lot of distress. And it was not easy for me to to try to comfort people and to try to uh, take that emotionally supportive role. But that's what I needed to do. And that's one example of something that was not part of my regular job description, but something that I needed to do to be a part of this transformative effort uh, to help turn things around based on, on this leader's guidance. And what are some other ways he helped turn things around? He was an, an encompassing leader. That's another thing that transformational leaders do. They are, they are encompassing in that they take a combined task approach and a combined uh, – and a relationship approach where they do all the kinds of things that motivate people – and get the job done, but also um, providing support and doing things like coaching and, and um, motivating people in an inspiring way. And so one of the things that he that he did with me was, in addition to the humanitarian type things around the unit, he gave me the opportunity to engage in more tactical tasks as well. As an XO, you know, somebody who had been working behind the scenes, I didn't expect to actually lead a fairly significant mission on a suspected insurgent hideout, but that was something that he had me do. He had me lead a mission, a nighttime uh, raid on a on an insurgent hideout, which seemed to be successful in terms of what we had set out to do, but it was not something that I expected to do early on as an XO. And so that's kind of the other side of the coin of these extra efforts, these kind of extra roles that I did as as his follower under this transformational style, where clearly I was doing more than I ever expected to do, but it was part of this overall effort of serving this vision uh, to turn things around, to motivate people to kind of go above short-term interest for the good of the group and um, accomplish something that, that was bigger than uh, than all of us. You did a study on this and found this special kind of emotional growth after trauma is especially positive in the lives of people who've experienced it. And transformational leaders are able to affect this change in people. Uh, that's right. One of my uh, recent studies was, of course, separate from my own experience. This was uh, based on a sample of combat veterans from multiple conflicts. But essentially, this study looked at perceived transformational leadership. So these veterans, uh, it was uh, over 100 veterans who were asked to to retrospectively rate the quality or the transformational quality of the leader they had during their most recent deployments and, and of course, they were all combat veterans. And so essentially what I found was the more they rated their leaders to be transformational, you know, these leaders who are inspirational, they drive positive change, they support their followers, the more the leaders were of that quality, the more personal growth, uh, these, these veterans doing the surveys, the more personal growth uh, they reported following their deployment. They also reported a greater sense of adjustment or a greater sense of confidence in adjusting to life after deployment. So essentially what these leaders do, what these transformational leaders do is they find ways to frame major stressors like combat, to frame these stressors as an opportunity for personal growth. So an example of, of post-traumatic growth might be being able to relate to others better, maybe being better able to ask for help, maybe realizing that you're stronger than you than you thought that you were. Maybe now that you're through the stressor or the trauma, you appreciate life in a new way and make more of an effort to, to ask for help and connect with others and, and appreciate uh, new opportunities. And so that was one of the main outcomes of, of this recent study, and uh, it's something I enjoy talking about because it, it speaks to the need to have psychologically informed leaders who don't just manage immediate expectations, who don't just focus on the task or the mission, but also uh, have a mind for the long-term psychological well-being of their followers. Do you think there are some famous transformational leaders you can point to today that are not in the military? I think history is full of leaders who inherited a tough situation, perhaps, who had a vision to change a whole society. Uh, Nelson Mandela comes to mind. Uh, Mohandas Gandhi comes to mind as leaders who changed the way people thought about what true justice is and gained a huge following in terms of 
raising the motivation and morality of their followers and themselves. In fact, this that's a kind of catchphrase of transformation leaders in which they raise the motivation and morality of not just their people but of themselves because leaders like Mandela and others were able to identify a positive direction that, that needed to happen and were able to uh, so inspire um, many people around them that they were able to drive a positive change that that had a kind of important social message that had an uplifting message to it. And so, of course, there are a lot of household names of these larger-than-life type transformational leaders who did something quite extraordinary that's now in the history books and, and something to be studied. But I would also say that transformational leaders can be leaders who just work with a few people and find a way to offer up a vision that takes things in a positive direction you know even if you never become famous or if it's not uh, not something that's 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 all that well known these types of leaders do their job if they have a vision that meets the enduring needs of their followers and accomplish something extraordinary Michael Laraca is a psychology professor at Virginia Military Institute we all negotiate on a daily basis whether it's deciding where to eat with friends or asking for a raise at work my next guest, Aaron Arndt, says preparation is key to becoming a good negotiator. Aaron Arndt is a marketing professor at Old Dominion University and chair of the Thurman School of Professional Sales and Negotiations there. Aaron, before you were a professor, you were a salesperson selling mortgages. Were you fresh out of college back then? I sure was. That was my first job right out of college. I barely knew anything about mortgages, and uh, I knew even less about how to sell. So <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> I definitely did. It could, could have done better. Were you good at it? Um, so when I when I first started out, we didn't have a, a ton of training within that organization that I was in. And right. they put me on the phones just that first night to start telemarketing. And I barely knew, I barely knew anything. I remember thinking to myself, how do I do this? Like, what, what should I say? You know, what, what should, and so I, I kind of defaulted to what you see in the media, you know, like how to sell, you know, and it was, it was a little bit more of a pitch than it was a conversation. So I would call up these customers and pitch them. And I got a whole, whole lot of no's. Um, probably the, the worst no I got was, uh, somebody who was very upset at being interrupted, uh, and he said, I'm going to rip out your black beating heart and shove it down your throat. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm not doing something right. <laughs> did you stay long? Um, in that job, I did not stay super long, no. I stayed for a little less than a year in that one. I think failures are as tremendous for learning opportunities as successes are. What did you glean from that for yourself and your journey? Well, I, I learned a lot about what not to do. So first of all, telemarketing is, a, is not a very effective way of selling mortgages. There are a lot more effective ways of doing it. Later on, when I joined another company, I was far more effective in, in my process. So there's a process to it that I learned. Also, the way you speak to customers you know, in terms of having a conversation versus pitching, and, and pitching can work sometimes, but oftentimes it's not the most effective way, especially when you're selling something that's a really Im important big product like a mortgage. You know, something's going to affect people's lives for 30 years. You know, you eventually decided to study sales and negotiation skills and to get better at it. What do you share with students that are the fundamentals of good negotiating? So one of the first things that I tell them is that every person is going to have a different style. So the best way to sell is depends on the person. So to a certain extent, you have to be you. You just have to be the best version of you for the situation. So we work on improving students' styles and, and customizing it to who they are and what they can do. The other thing is we talk a lot about process, how to prospect, how to hold a sales conversation, you know, when to try and sell, when to try and close, that kind of thing. We also talk about basics, um, how to dress for selling, how to prepare for a sale to make sure that you're going to come across as well as possible. So we go through a lot of different topics. So in terms of the most important thing to do, it, it really is to be prepared. So 
when to know, when to walk away, what your starting position should be. Those are the kind of things that you should prepare beforehand. And then also your style and how to deal with different people who have different styles. So if you're dealing with somebody who is has a very aggressive style, what should you do? And there is there is um, some techniques you can use to counter a very aggressive style. If this always can be really friendly. Um, how should you go about with that? And, and having a disarming, friendly style, it can be very effective. And sometimes you don't want to negotiate at all. Sometimes the best thing to do is to skip the negotiation. If you aren't going to get what you want out of talking to someone, sometimes just not. So learning that process is very important. Give me some examples of negotiations in real life and um, how one technique or another was very valuable in each case. I'm sure they're all different. So one person was negotiating over a driveway permit with the city, and the driveway went actually over the city's land. So the city came back at one point, and it asked the individual to take their driveway out. Well, the knee-jerk reaction would have been to run down to the city and say, hey, you know, please don't do this, or to beg, plead, yell, something like that. But instead, the person went down and got the driveway permit. So getting the permit then provided some like additional um, strength to the argument, saying, hey, look, city, you approved this driveway to be put in. So asking me to take it out after the fact, you've had a professional survey, you've had it, you've approved this survey. So why are you asking me to take it out now? So it gave a stronger position. So it's the idea of not running in knee-jerk reaction and starting to yell, but taking a, a deep breath and thinking about it and trying to build up the case and build up the negotiating power. As you're describing that experience, it makes me realize we are always negotiating in our lives from the tiniest things and interactions to really big ones, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, I negotiate all the time with my wife. We decide where we're going to go to eat, right? Sure. I mean, all the way from small things to larger decisions in your life, like, for example, if you're going to move houses, which house do you purchase, to in your professional lives. Um, now, obviously, salespeople, and I focus on the sales program, negotiate with customers all the time, particularly in a business-to-business kind of situation. But then there's also other negotiations you have as an employee, negotiations with your manager, for example, over pay, negotiations over things like vacation time, negotiations that you may have with your colleagues over resources. Negotiations are one of those things that is so important in your personal and professional life. Give me some ways that all of us can be better negotiators in the workplace with colleagues, with bosses, with others outside the organization. Well, if at all possible, and this isn't always true, but if at all possible, take a moment to think about your negotiation and take a moment to think about what you want and what the other person might want. If you want to have a long-term relationship, particularly with colleagues or you know, with your spouse or friends, you have to think about what they get out of it too. It has to be mutually beneficial. It can't just be a right. one-sided thing. So that's one thing is to make sure that you both benefit. You both walk away feeling happy with, with the deal. If you can take a moment to slow down the process and think that through, you're going to be better off. The hardest negotiations are the ones where you walk in cold and it's just a matter of, you know, reflexively coming up with, with ideas. And, and oftentimes those can escalate into arguments, debates, and nobody walks away happy. You're also teaching these skills to underserved groups in the community and in particular, making sure that women learn these skills. Why is that important? Well, it's absolutely essential. So traditionally, these skills have been reserved for people who are in the business school, and particularly uh, white men. By bringing them out to the community, more people will have access to them and will be able to, to take advantage of them, which will can benefit their personal life and their career. So in the past, there have been a number of studies which have shown that women tend to get lower negotiated outcomes than men. But the caveat to that is that when women are negotiating on behalf of, of organizations and when women have negotiation training, those differences disappear. So by bringing negotiating 
training to women and underserved minorities. What we can do is we can help to decrease the gap in negotiated outcomes for women. And of course, if you're talking about things, as we mentioned earlier, that it's important for your professional life, it's important for your personal life. So we could really make a difference in people's lives by bringing these skills out to to women and minorities. Give me examples of the kind of things that um, that people come away with. So I had a student a number of years ago who took my course and she wanted to negotiate a pay raise at work. And she came back after the class to tell me about this. And she went through all the prep work that we taught in class and got ready for this negotiation, was really ready for her boss to, to come back and say no and to have it be a, a back and forth. She walked in the room, said, this is the pay increase I would like to receive. And he said, okay. She told us, she, she, she laughed about it. She said, you know, I didn't need to have any of, of the things prepared as it turned out, but it gave me the confidence to walk in the room and ask for it. And I think, you know, if she had needed it, of course she would have had it. But sometimes it's just the confidence that you need to have that prep work. So I think that these are the kind of skills and, and things that we can impart in people's lives uh, that will make a difference. That sounds wonderful. Well, Aaron Arndt, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Aaron Arndt is a marketing professor at Old Dominion University. He's also chair of the Thurman School of Professional Sales and Negotiations there. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Custo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.